Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to this, the first forum of the joint project, which is entitled Islam Today, New Media and Youth Culture in the Middle East, South Asia, and Southeast Asia. Um, with funding support from the Social Science Research Council, the SSRC, our three centers at Berkeley, the Center for South Asia Studies, the Center for Southeast Asia Studies, and the Center for Middle Eastern Studies, uh, have been working together on this collaborative effort to increase public understanding of Islam uh, in these three world regions. We hope to do so specifically by looking at how Muslim youth around the world are using new media to articulate their identities, to seek out and to create virtual communities, as well as to confront what obviously has become very important since 9-11, anti-Muslim stereotypes that circulate throughout the virtual web. Today's forum, entitled Politics and New Media in the Muslim World, brings together a distinguished group of practitioners, activists, and scholars to discuss how, to use how the use of technology and new media has affected discussions and debates about political issues and about political change in different parts of the Muslim world. Today, the Muslim world obviously occupies an extremely important uh, uh, space, even within the American uh, debates uh, about who we are and how we can manage. I am sitting at the moment on a uh, uh, dissertation uh, uh, whose title is, Is the uh, Veil American? And just for me, it was a reminder, uh, and this particular student is working on looking at aspects of the U.S. Constitution and asking questions that sort of relate the idea of being an American to also being a Muslim American. Before our moderator introduces the speakers for the evening, I would like to take a moment and thank our co-sponsors, including the Asia Society of Northern California, the Arab Cultural and Community Center, the Islamic Groups Network, and Medan.net for their support in making tonight's event possible. This event certainly would also not have been possible without the organizers at the University of California, Berkeley, who include Sarah Maxim, the Vice Chair of the Center for Southeast Asian Studies, Sanchita Saxena, who is the Vice Chair of the Center for South Asia Studies, and Mishgam Masumi, who is the Manager and Program Coordinator of the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. It was their idea to get together. It was their idea to write the SSRC proposal. It was their idea to come up with this program in its current form. I would also like to acknowledge Punita Kala, Thai Pham, and Kim Carl, whose technical expertise have made it possible particularly uh, with you know, the idea of new media and technology that has been involved in planning this event. Now I would like to introduce our moderator, Mr. Wajhat Ali. Wajhat is the associate editor of uh, altmuslim.com. He writes his own blog, as well as a, um, what is called goatmilk.wordpress.com. <laughs> He has also recently had his play, Domestic Crusaders, produced in New York, a play which uh, he began writing while an undergraduate student at Berkeley. For those of you who are actually interested in this side of his life, I would refer you to a recent article in the New York Times about the play. Please join me in welcoming Wajhat, who will introduce our panelists. Thank you very much. Assalamu alaikum. May peace be with you. And thank you for joining us today 
for the first part of a three-part year-long wonderful series uh, sponsored by University of California, Berkeley. Today is Islam Today, Islam Today Youth and New Media, Politics and New Media in the, in the Muslim World. Um, very quickly, I'm just going to give a small introduction, and then we're going to get the ball rolling and introduce our wonderful speakers. In the 20th century, they used to say the revolution will not be televised. In the 21st century, the revolution will be Twittered. <laughs> right? Uh, this is a new language for a new age. In this modern age, people are Googled. You are poked on Facebook. You can upload on YouTube. You can upload. You can download. You can syndicate. You can blog. And you can talk in HTML code. This is the language of the 21st century. This is the narrative of a young generation that is willing to speak out. So it's a brave new world that we live in, and change is coming. And whether it's good or not depends on your perspective. When your mother adds you on Facebook, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> but this is the world that we live in. But what we do see seriously is a democratization of the media and uh, the changes and effects of globalization, where a gentleman in Egypt can poke you, and you're sitting in New York, where you can get a Twitter message sitting in Indonesia from a lady sitting in California, where we're sitting here uh, in America learning about what's happening in Iran due to Iranians twittering during the Green Revolution, where we have bloggers in Egypt uh, trying their best to fight back, if you will, under the dictatorship of Hosni Mubarak through blogs, and suffering through being detained and sometimes being uh, kidnapped in the night. Uh, where we see uh, a new wave of politicians and activists in Malaysia trying for democracy while still retaining their Muslim identity. And so this is a really brave new world of how Muslims all around the world are reshaping their identity, reclaiming their Islam, and moving forward uh, using technology as a new language. And today we're really lucky that we have in an international Justice League, if you will, of uh, scholars and activists and journalists here. Uh, and some of these are all of the above. We have people here from Egypt, uh, scholars here from Malaysia, uh, people from Indonesia, people from New York, and even a journalist from Pakistan. So let's get, the, let's get this started. And let me just give you the quick format. Each of one of our wonderful speakers will have about 20 minutes to speak. And I've been given the this dishonorable duty of giving them the times so I have to keep it to your time. After 20 minutes, uh, after everyone's uh, spoken for the 20 minutes, we're going to have a question and answer session. And it's really meant to be interactive. So we really welcome questions from the audience. Uh, and then we're going to have a back and forth conversation. And then we're, gonna have, or then we're all going to be fed. So thank you, UC Berkeley, for feeding all of us. Uh, the speakers, just to give you a lineup, first our speaker will be Muhammad Abdul Dayem who will be speaking about Egypt and the Middle East. Our second speaker will be Huma Yusuf, who will be talking about Pakistan. Uh, our third speaker is Muhammad Ali, a scholar here, who will be talking about Indonesia. Harun Mughal from New York. Uh, and finally, Nick Nazimi bin Nick Ahmed, who will be speaking about what's happening in Malaysia. So to start off, our first speaker, I'm proud to introduce, is Muhammad Abdul Dayan. He is a program coordinator for the Middle East and North Africa for the Committee to Protect Journalists. Before joining in 2008, he worked for the Save Darfur Coalition. He's also worked for the National Endowment for Democracy, where he managed the endowment's Iraq portfolio. And he's also worked for the Human Rights Watch, where he conducted research and media outreach on countries throughout the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, he is an MA from the School of Advanced International Studies at the John Hopkins University. Ladies and gentlemen, 
a nice warm round of applause for Mohammed Abdul Dayam. All right, uh, I'm going to be talking to you guys tonight about um, the Middle East specifically, uh, which is my area of expertise. Um, and I, I want to talk about traditional media for a second uh, and spend a, a few minutes talking about that because it gives you an idea of um, the kind of environment that, that new media um, is, is, is taking place in. Um, even though there's a lot of variation uh, among the countries of the Middle East, and, and by that I mean um, all the Arab-speaking countries, starting with Morocco in the West, all the way um, to Iraq and the Gulf countries in the East, as well as Turkey and Iran. Uh, all of those countries have quite a few variations in terms, of, in terms of the media landscape in those countries. But when you look at that region collectively, it is probably the most repressive region uh, in terms of media freedoms. And, and I'll explain why in a second. Um, I want to spend a couple of minutes talking about print and then about TV uh, and radio before I move on to, uh, to new media and, and specifically to blogging. Uh, in print media, in every single one of those 22 countries, uh, you find criminal defamation laws on the books in every single one of those countries, which of course is a problem because every time a journalist writes about corruption or environmental degradation or the fact that the president's son uh, runs a monopoly on cement or something else, uh, sooner or later they find themselves uh, being sued for criminal defamation, which not only means they're going to be broke, but it also means they're going to go to jail. Um, Defamation, uh, as a matter of principle, should be a, a, civil, a civil matter, uh, settled in a civil court. Um, and if you're fined guilty of uh, defamation, you should be fined, but you should not serve time in prison for, um, for defamation. Another problem uh, print journalists face in the region is the fact that um, all the press laws and even some of the, penal, the provisions of the penal codes are, are very vaguely defined so that you can be charged with things like spreading false information and virtually anything can, can fall under this rubric of, of spreading false information. Um, we have also seen in the last couple of years uh, a new wave of, of new press laws that at least in principle are supposed to be um, more liberal, more forgiving um, in places like the Sudan, the UAE, and um, in Iraqi Kurdistan. And on the face of them, those laws look better. Um, very frequently, uh, those laws are touted as having removed all, all prison uh, terms from the law, which uh, on the face of it is a good thing. But if you look a little deeper, you always see that um, whereas they remove the prison time, they um, up the, the, um, the fines. So in the UAE, for example, um, the ceiling for, uh, for fines now is 5 million dirhams. That's about $1.4 million. And you only, get, you only get one fine. No, no newspaper in that country could ever survive uh, two of those fines. So, um, you know, they, they, give, they give with one hand and they, they take with the other hand. Uh, moving on to uh, TV and radio. Um, those are two mediums that are even more restrictive and more controlled by the government uh, than print. Um, the governments uh, in every single one of those countries basically leverage their control over broadcast equipment, uh, licensing, re licensing regimes, and, and things like that. And in the past 10 years or so, we've, we've seen um, a loosening of the, of the government monopoly of the means of communication as a result of satellite television. Um, and, and governments have had a, a real tough time um, controlling the, the things that are being said on satellite television. And so last year, we saw the Arab League pass a resolution uh, 20, uh, 20 out of the 22 countries voted for it, and two countries abstained, uh, essentially calling on all the member states to 
pass domestic legislation that would uh, hold satellite broadcasters criminally liable for a whole bunch of, once again, vaguely defined offenses, such as offending Islam, criticizing heads of state, um, and, and, and other nebulously defined uh, charges. Um, and, and I wanted to spend a couple of minutes talking about those things to give you an idea of the type of environment under which uh, bloggers and, and other um, young journalists uh, are, are trying to, to, to break the stranglehold on, on means of communication. Um, this this restri restrictive media landscape um, has, has dovetailed with, with a couple of other uh, elements that have been taking place recently in the region and have resulted in, in, a, in a flourishing of the blogging culture, specifically uh, a very young and literate, po literate population. So you look at a country like Iran, for instance, with a literacy rate of 98%. That's actually higher than Norway. Um, and, and also an explosion in the number of um, people that are online. Between 2000 and 2008, um, internet penetration in the region um, grew 13-fold, whereas uh, the worldwide average was a simple doubling. Uh, so that gives you an idea of, of the, the types of changes that, that are taking place in that area and, and how quickly they're taking place. And we have seen the results of that um, in places like Iran after the election, where um, thousands of, of young people and, and old people uh, went online and, and blogged and, and tweeted and twittered um, and basically uh, illustrated to the world that, that the, Iranian, the Iranian government and the Iranian people are not the monolithic uh, entity that they're often portrayed as in the media. We see this in Egypt where uh, young courageous bloggers have documented um, often with uh, with, with photo and video evidence, uh, torture in police stations, election fraud, uh, government corruption, and bribe taking. We see the same thing in the Gulf, where uh, a number of bloggers have exposed human rights violations, violations of um, child labor law and, 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 and migrant labor law. And, and region-wide, we see bloggers um, talking about things that traditional media would never be able to talk about, such as HIV AIDS, sexual harassment, and other things that are traditionally thought of as red lines and, and, and cannot and should not be crossed. And uh, we're not, we here are not the only people that, that see the effect of, of this blogging revolution, so to speak. Governments have, have, have felt this uh, almost immediately, and, and we're very, very much worried by, by the fact that um, their monopoly over the means of communications is, in fact, slipping. And, and they've combated this in, in three main ways. And, and let me just spend a couple of minutes talking about each of those tactics, because um, they're all very important. The first one is. Um, Using, using existing and, and new laws to, um, to go after uh, bloggers and other people that use social media uh, to restrict their freedom of expression online. The, the second um, such tactic is the use of extrajudicial harassment and politicized judicial proceedings, uh, again, to, to achieve the same goal. And the third one is the use of advanced technology to monitor, track, filter, and block uh, people online. Uh, going back to the first category, this really encompasses a, a, ho a whole host of things. Um, like I mentioned earlier, the, the press and penal codes in most, if not all, of those countries are very restrictive and, and are very malleable and can be used um, in, in, in highly politicized ways to silence people who, who cross certain lead lines and, and who um, take the government on. Um, there, there have also been a number of countries, uh, primarily Syria, Tunisia, um, 
Jordan and Saudi Arabia, who um, have simply extended all the all the, the um, repressive provisions of their press and and penal codes uh, by simply amending those laws to say all those provisions also uh, now apply to electronic media. And so, literally, they add one line into their press and penal codes, and uh, by doing that, they've almost uh, immediately outlawed virtually all kinds of, of dissent online. The third, the third type of thing that, that we're seeing happen um, in this category is the, uh, the passing of new Internet-specific laws. We've seen this happen in, in Iran. Uh, last July, the Iranian government passed such a law, uh, which is very restrictive. It orders, among other things, it orders Internet service providers to record and, and keep um, all essentially surfing habits uh, of, of all users for a minimum of three months, which in effect means that the government can then uh, pinpoint people that, that have um, angered them for one reason or another, go pull up their, um, essentially their, their, their surfing history and every single email they've sent and received and then pursue them through, through these, the, the, the laws I, I've just spoken about. Um, another, uh, the second, the second form of um, that I was talking about here is is this uh, extrajudicial harassment, uh, and the most common type of which has been sort of unwarranted police summons to appear uh, at a police station or at the Ministry of Interior for questioning. Um, usually, for, for for no legitimate reason, this is simply a tactic to scare and intimidate, and unfortunately, it it, it works a lot. Um, a local organization, a local human rights organization in Egypt, for example, uh, documented 160 such cases in 2008 alone. That means basically one such case every second day or so. Um, and, and, and this is not particular to Egypt. Uh, the same kind of thing happens in Iran, in Tunisia, and Saudi Arabia, and throughout, throughout the region to a lesser extent. I think those three or four countries are the biggest offenders when it comes to that. Um, those governments have, have also had a history of um, Harassing uh, family members of bloggers uh, when, when uh, harassing the bloggers directly uh, fails to achieve the desired result. They have frequently fired family members who are, who are employed in government jobs, uh, prevented them from traveling, uh, have simply disappeared them, and uh, left phone messages to the effect of, you know, you can see your father again when you stop blogging, uh, that type of thing. And it, unfortunately, that, that kind of thing does work. Um, when, when that doesn't work, governments frequently resort to smear campaigns, um, calling, calling these, these bloggers everything from spies and agents of imperialism to sexual deviants to uh, really just, just about anything you can imagine. Um, this has very frequently resulted in, in those people losing their, their, their day jobs, uh, and those that have lost their jobs have uh, more often than not not been able to, to, um, to find reemployment. Um, of course, sometimes this backfires because then these guys are sitting at home with nothing to do all day, so they just blog more. Um, but so it goes. Uh, travel bans is another tactic that, that governments have, have used frequently um, to, uh, to prevent those bloggers from going abroad, participating in, in events like this one, uh, and sharing their experiences and learning from the experiences of their fellow bloggers elsewhere. Uh, and when all of those things fail, the, the governments in this region, uh, specifically Iran, Egypt, Syria, and Tunisia, um, are the biggest offenders when it comes to this, um, 
have, have made it clear that they're willing to um, engage specific bloggers uh, and put them in jail, either for short periods of time or for extended periods of time, um, as, as long as five years in some cases. Uh, and, and this really serves two purposes. It silences uh, that, that one uh, blogger, but it also really intimidates dozens and dozens of his friends and colleagues. The third um, tactic that is, um, that is used to, um, to, to quell dissent online is the use of advanced technology. And that comes in, 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 various, um, in various modes. Chief amongst them is blocking and filtering of, of content and of blogs, uh, blog posts and of entire blogs altogether. Um, the monitoring um, and disruption of information whether it be um, actual blogs or, or email communication or other forms of digital communication, including um, voice calls uh, on cell phones, which are carried through the same <clears throat> networks as other online traffic, uh, SMS messages, instant, uh, instant uh, messages, and, and chats online. <clears throat> and uh, in my research, I've talked to multiple bloggers that were, at, at one time or another, uh, being held and being interrogated and, and they've been confronted with printouts, you know, tens and, and, and hundreds of pages of printouts of every single page they've visited in the past year, every single chat they've had with, with other bloggers in, in that country and other countries. And, and those things are basically used to, to intimidate them and, and to break them down psychologically and, and to make them um, basically give up, uh, give up other, other people that are, that are working in that field. Uh, last but not least, um, a number of governments, especially the Tunisian government and the Iranian government, have been engaged in, in, a, in an intense campaign of, of hacking and of electronic <laughs> sabotage, where they simply, uh, once they've tried everything else that I've talked about, um, when, when none of those things have worked, they simply um, break into your site, crack your password, go in there and delete all your archives. Um, pirate your address book, send viruses to everyone in your address book, and there goes seven, eight, nine years of blogging, and you basically got to start from scratch if, if you've got the heart. Some, some people do, some people don't. So um, I've painted a somewhat dim picture here for everybody, um, and, and that's because, because it is a dim picture. However, there are plenty of reasons to be optimistic, um, and, and let, me, let me just talk about those briefly. Um, we, we, have, um, we have noticed that in, in the past few years, uh, bloggers have, have broken the types of stories I was talking about earlier, and by doing so have, have provided political cover for traditional journalists, whether uh, in print or, or in radio, usually not on television, but in, in print and in radio, to then uh, address those issues. Once, once bloggers have demonstrated that, that there is a public interest in those issues and that those issues indeed do have traction, um, some of the more courageous editors and writers are then willing to take a chance, um, whereas they, they may not have been willing to do so uh, previously. Um, bloggers, like uh, satellite TV broadcasters before them, have done a, a very successful job of, of breaking the government monopoly on, on means of communication, uh, and, and they will continue to do so for the, for the foreseeable future. Um, Blogging is also also here to stay because it presents virtually no barriers to entry. Uh, if you want to start a newspaper, you've got to find a printing press. Usually the printing press is owned by the government or it's owned privately by someone who's affiliated with the government. And if you, can't, if you don't have a printing press, you don't have a paper. 
And if you want to start a radio station, if you can't, um, if you can't get a frequency, you can't have a radio station. And so basically what I'm trying to say here is uh, to run a blog, you need an internet connection. And even when they cut off your internet connection at home, you can steal somebody's Wi-Fi, and you can still write a blog. Um, governments have, have, especially in, in the past three or four years, um, really come after bloggers with a vengeance because they don't enjoy the, the relative protections that um, traditional journalists have, um, usually through, through the services of, of press syndicates. Um, those bloggers are essentially people that work on their own, uh, frequently from, from their living room or their bedroom. Um, you know, and if they disappear overnight, uh, they don't have a colleague that sits next, uh, in, on a desk next to them the next day that wonders, where is so-and-so? So frequently these people are kidnapped or, or arrested, and it takes weeks before, before people realize that they're actually gone. Um, but bloggers have been fighting back recently. And so in the past two years or so, we've seen uh, the establishment of Bloggers Association in, I would say, maybe 14 or 15 out of the 20 or so countries I'm talking about. Uh, there have been at least... Uh, two, two regional um, organizations that advocate on behalf and, and raise awareness on behalf of bloggers. And there is also um, a region-wide organization that now advocates for a free and open Internet in the Middle East. Um, the, 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 the last thing is uh, that I want to share with you is um, governments spend a lot of money and, and a lot of time on coming up with, um, specifically with these technological ways of, of blocking and filtering and otherwise disrupting um, internet service and, and, and connectivity and the ability of people to, to reach certain blogs or to reach certain news websites. Uh, sometimes they spend upwards, you know, millions and millions of dollars uh, to do such things. And fortunately for us and fortunately for the bloggers, uh, sometimes all it takes is a 15-year-old with a you know, with a brilliant mind, uh, and they'll develop a piece of software or they'll break some code, uh, virtually rendering, you know, months and months and millions of dollars worth of work uh, completely useless. This has happened multiple times. Uh, it always puts a smile on my face. And um, it gives you hope that the governments cannot do uh, what they used to do with, with printing presses and licensing regimes for decades upon decades, and that perhaps blogging and the internet are in fact a, a new frontier um, where people will be able to talk more freely and it will be far more difficult for, for governments um, to, to, to silence uh, dissenters. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mohammed Abdeldaim. Our second speaker has come to us all the way from Pakistan to join us for this conference. Huma Yusuf is the features editor of Dawn.com, the website of Pakistan's leading English language daily. Uh, she reports on media trends, terrorism, and human rights for Dawn, the Christian Science Monitor, as well as other news organizations. She's a graduate of MIT's Comparative Media Studies program, where she worked as a researcher for the Center for Future Civic Media. Her recent writings examine the interplay of new media and democracy in Pakistan, as well as the importance of community radio stations in combating terrorism. Ladies and gentlemen, Huma Yusuf. 
Thank you. Um, so I'm going to be talking a little bit about new media, political activism, and civic engagement in Pakistan. And uh, specifically, I want to trace the emergence of um, the phenomenon of new media use um, for political activism, citizen journalism, um, and community organizing in Pakistan over the last two years or so. Um, so let me just quickly sort of take us back to the beginning. I would argue that citizen media in Pakistan has a birthday, um, and that was November 3rd, 2007. Um, so that was the date that if any of you follow Pakistani politics would know, um, former President uh, Pervez Musharraf imposed emergency rule in Pakistan. Um, and um, three and a half months from that date onwards was one of the most turbulent times in Pakistan's political history. We saw um, emergency declared, our constitution suspended, the Supreme Court justice put under house arrest. We then saw a military dictator who had been running the country for almost eight years step down from power, and uh, he was forced into declaring um, uh, and announcing general elections a few days before the elections were due to be held. Former Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto, arguably the most popular politician in Pakistan's history, was assassinated, and yet elections went on and were held um, in February 2008. And colloquially, this period is known as um, the Pakistan emergency. And it was in this time period that new media really emerged as a force for um, political activism, um, community organizing, and civic engagement in the country. And what I'm going to do is quickly just share some examples from you from around that time to give you a sense of how um, bloggers, independent activists, human rights activists are currently using new media in Pakistan to influence uh, political change. So one of the reasons that um, new media um, emerges at this time is that Musharraf, um, after in, in 2002 when he came into power, soon after he came into power, he liberalized the Pakistani media and allowed independent private channels to be licensed in the country, and we had this amazing, phenomenal media boom in the country. But by the end of his reign, he was anxious about this, and the day he imposed emergency rule, he um, put 30 news channels off the air. He just shut them down, blocked them, no TV in a country that had, over the last six years, become addicted to their daily 9 p.m. news shows and all of that. Um, what very quickly happened, though, was that some of the independent news channels, sort of foreseeing this, I think, had um, established bureaus in Dubai, in the United Arab Emirates, and they started live streaming their content online. And very quickly, bloggers who had up to now just basically been running journals and private diaries online found those live streams, started editing them into neat little chunks that highlighted the most important news that was relevant to the emergency and any updates related to what the government was doing in its crackdown on civil rights and lawyers and things like that, and started uploading them as smaller nuggets on YouTube. Um, that example that the bloggers set inspired the TV producers themselves to start producing their news not as live internet streams but as little packets for YouTube. And these were widely circulated amongst the Pakistani diaspora as well as within Pakistan. And this was the first thing that sort of sent Pakistanis in very, very large numbers online so to be able to get news about what was happening related to the emergency. The other thing that happened to sort of prompt new media technology sort of coming to the forefront in Pakistan was um, something like you were describing, um, the, the blocking of cellular connectivity. Um, cell phone jamming became so common in November and December 2007. And 
The reason for this was that communities, um, cell phones had sort of come to Pakistan in 2002, 2003. There was an explosion of cell phone use in the country by about 2006. 60% of the entire cell phone market in Pakistan was well equipped with a cell phone and um, cell phone connection. Um, and SMS text messages were being used to organize protest rallies against emergency rule. Um, also, in the absence of television news reports, SMS became the fastest way to spread news about the emergency. So if some politician or lawyer was put under house arrest, his family would start texting, those texts would get forwarded. So that was one of the main ways that information was being circulated at the time. So very quickly, the government shut it down. Um, around the Supreme Court, at uh, popular protest venues, large parks, stadiums, main street avenues, um, at the homes of people who had been put under house arrest, including lawyers and journalists, cell phones were jammed. Um, and um, um, even though t uh, telecommunication companies in Pakistan are privately owned, they have subsequently admitted that the government sort of threatened them with revoking their licenses, and so they either had to comply or just shut down businesses that they had invested millions and billions of dollars in. So you end up in a situation where Pakistanis, who at this point are used to um, cell phones and TV, they love it, they like getting their information, they like sending it out, have nothing to do. So naturally, um, university students are like, we need to do something about this. Um, very quickly, I'm going to give you some statistics. Uh, population of Pakistan is about 170 million people. Um, 17 million have internet access. What that means in real terms is that there are 3.5 million internet connections um, in the country, but most of those are cyber cafes. So the actual usage of the internet is by about 17 million people. But, which is a very tiny number is what I'm trying to say. But 80% uh, of all university students have access to the internet. So this was a very natural fit. Students um, were amongst the first to protest emergency rule, um, and they were amongst the first to realize that their protests were sort of useless because the police would show up anytime there was a protest and shut it down. Or um, if journalists had arrived at the site to cover the protest and sort of get the word out that people aren't so happy about having their constitution suspended, those journalists were being scared off or their equipment was being confiscated. And these university students who were gathering in numbers of up to 1,000, 1,200, fairly significant at a time of emergency rule, um, realized that they had to get the word out and let people know they were protesting for anything to make a difference. So what they did was naturally turn to the internet. And this was actually a bit of a new media phenomenon because I'm talking about a spate of approximately one week. Emergency rule was declared on November 3rd, and by about November 10th, I'm going to make a quick list of all the sorts of things that you could see happening online to get word out that young Pakistanis were not happy about emergency rule. Um, most obviously, they were using camera phones to uh, take pictures off and take short videos off their protests and putting those on YouTube and Flickr. Um, they had um, used Facebook to disseminate information about their um, rallies, to organize people, to set the time, venue, logistical stuff, but also to encourage people in the diaspora, Pakistanis based in places like New York, London, Boston, wherever else, to rally at the exact same time as them, knowing that theirs would get shut down, but CNN would show up to cover the diaspora rally. And that actually worked at that time. Um, very quickly, uh, students realized that um, the government was actually monitoring Flickr. This is what's also interesting, is that governments are pretty savvy about new media technologies as well. And students whose images were going up on Flickr were being identified as student activists and were getting picked up and arrested the next day. So very quickly, the students responded by putting up images on Flickr but ensuring that faces were blurred or putting funny masks and photoshopping it and things. But this got the word out. 
The most interesting tool that I saw being used at that time was SMS to blog, which is a way to send text messages and have them directly go as live updates on a blog. Um, the way um, people used this was to make their rallies very dynamic. So students would start marching, and they would have it planned via Facebook that you know people would join the protest as it moved through a space. Um, but if the police showed up at one point, instantly text messages would go out saying, police over here, start coming from another direction. So they had very dynamic physical movement as a result of SMS to blogs. So that was great. Um, and of course, the best tool that they had available to them were blogs. Um, and the exemplary ex blog, the one that really made a huge difference, was the Emergency Times. I've got its banner up there. Um, this, at its, at its peak, was reaching out to about 150,000 people in Pakistan. And every message they used to put up there, most of them, not every, um, included an SMS version of the same idea so that you could read it on the blog. And then the idea was to get online and text it out to as many people who didn't have internet connections. Um, and this blog, in addition to sort of hosting things like the live updates coming via SMS, was get, students were interviewing um, um, politicians about the emergency rule, journalists, lawyers, getting all this really good documentation of any energy or um, uh, resistance to the emergency and sort of putting it all in one place. And this actually eventually became one of the only sites of original news reporting on resistance to the emergency rule in Pakistan for the duration of the emergency, because a lot of the local media outlets were just shut down and sitting and watching. Um, so that was how sort of political activism in Pakistan becomes synonymous with digital activism. Um, the other amazing thing that happens at this time is that citizen journalism emerges as a force and has continued now for two years to be one of the most credible and well-respected sources of um, information in the news context. Um, and this happens with one, again, there's a birth date here, which is December 27, 2007, which is the day of Benazir Bhutto's assassination. Um, very quickly, right after Bhutto's death, there was some controversy about what had actually killed her. Um, her supporters alleged that she had been shot by an assassin's bullet, while the government story was that there was a suicide bombing at the site of her uh, campaign rally, and having heard the noise of the explosion, she ducked into her car and hit her head um, on her car and suffered a head injury that eventually killed her. The reason, this sounds like semantics, but the reason it matters is because the presence of an assassin would have indicated both a lapse in the security that the government was providing her, as well as um, um, sort of perhaps indicate that the government was complicit in her assassinations. Those are political issues, but it became very important to find out how she was killed. Um, a young supporter of her political party had taken an amateur video of her campaign rally on his cell phone, and it captured the exact moment at which she sort of collapsed into the car. He posted this on a social networking site known as Orkut, the night of her assassination. Within minutes, he was inundated with questions about the authenticity of the video, where he got it, what he thought it showed, etc. He freaked out, pulled it off. In the meantime, however, a Karachi-based blogger whose name is Awab Alvi, he blogs at Teeth Maestro, he saw the video, realized this is gold, and took screenshots of the entire thing. He then uploaded those screenshots on his blog and annotated them, which is what you can see above me right now. He sort of broke the images down, the fuzzy images, and he said, look, this is what this is showing. And his annotations sort of indicate that Bhutto was shot before the suicide blast actually occurred. Um, the, the minute he put this on his blog, it was circulated widely. It went abroad within the next 20, 24 hours. Um, 
television channels in Pakistan, which by this point had gone back up on air, um, were using his images with his annotations to sort of explain that, you know, we think we have evidence that she was actually shot and it wasn't that she ducked and hurt herself. Um, and by the next day, UK's Channel 4 had contacted this blogger, had contacted his original source, managed to get the video, and used this Karachi-based blogger's annotations of that video to explain to the world that Benazir Bhutto was shot. She did not duck into her car and hit her head. And this has led into, and so eventually this was an amazing moment for all journalism in Pakistan where the government retracted its narrative about her death and since then has launched an investigation to find out who that assassin was, etc., etc. So that was citizen journalism coming into the fore, becoming a bit of a phenomenon. And then very beautifully, political activism and citizen journalism sort of met each other. And um, at the time of the February 2008 uh, general elections, um, the country went into these elections feeling very sensitive. They had lost their, like, their constitution had been suspended a uh, few months before. Benazir Bhutto had been assassinated. They desperately needed a free and fair election, um, something to believe in, literally. Um, and, but the news that was coming from across the country was not so good. Um, opposition politicians were finding that their rallies were being uh, blocked or shut down, their billboards were being removed, voters who were expressing support for anything other than General Pervez Musharraf's ruling party were being intimidated or bribed into changing their vote, and a media crackdown of a different nature was also imposed. Um, the news media was prohibited from interviewing opposition politicians, showing any coverage of their um, uh, rallies or anything like that. So what happens is that a whole bunch of bloggers and independent activists say, we need to do something about this because the media can't cover this. They send out via mailing lists and blogs calls for independent civilian monitoring of the elections. And in an unprecedented move, 20,000 people came out on the morning of the elections to um, monitor polls, and it was purely a volunteer basis. Absolutely no, eventually things like Human Rights Watch and all got involved, but at the last minute, this was just a purely citizen movement generated via new media technology. Um, blogs went out saying how people should monitor, what an irregularity was, how to document it, where to post it, etc., etc. So they were trained via blogs and emails and text messages. They were mobilized. It was wonderful. And of course, uh, they found one, um, some irregularities. Luckily for the Pakistani government, the election was largely free and fair. But there were obviously moments of election rigging or ballot stuffing and things like that. One of those was captured in Karachi by, um, and, and this was an interesting sort of, you can, the play between the government and bloggers and how these things work. Um, the video was captured on a cell phone camera, posted on, posted on YouTube, circulated widely, and this actually put a very prominent and powerful Karachi-based political party into a lot of trouble. Um, so very soon bloggers realized that anyone who was using the Pakistan government's internet service provider could no longer access YouTube. And very quickly that sort of moved into all um, service, internet service providers, they had blocked YouTube. So bloggers quickly embedded the video into their blogs as opposed to letting it sit on YouTube, trying to keep the video out there longer. Soon those were starting to get shut down. Very quickly the news media stepped in and the television channels broadcast um, the video on air. But by this point people realized, the government had realized that YouTube was causing them some trouble. So in an attempt to shut it down, they actually managed, some of you might remember this, to globally shut down YouTube. They don't have their coding right, they messed it up. 
And for two hours on a Sunday afternoon, no one in the world could access YouTube, which actually drew a lot of attention to the fact that Pakistan was trying to do some media censorship. There was an international outcry. YouTube was opened up in Pakistan. The video went back online. You can still see it there. Um, so these were really important moments for the emergence of um, new media in Pakistan. More recently, I think one of the most incredible things that we've seen bloggers do is cover the humanitarian crisis that was caused by the displacement of over three million people as a result of a military operation to stamp out militancy in the northwest of the country. Um, the traditional news media was so busy covering the, the war against the militants that this side of it was basically left up to the bloggers. Um, and with three million people living in badly accommodate, bad accommodations, not having enough resources, this was one of the most horrifying humanitarian crises that our country has seen. And bloggers managed to cover the living conditions of these people through YouTube videos, Flickr images. Um, they uh, circulated lists of different ways for civilians to help the IDPs, internally displaced people. Um, they offered real-time Twitter updates from the camps about things like resource shortages, um, violence that was breaking out in a tussle for resources, asking people to send in things to specific camps at specific times. Um, they were tweeting every news story that was coming out with regards to the IDPs and the crisis that they were facing. These bloggers visited the camps, they documented them, um, and I think that they managed and since this is online, they managed to actually mobilize many people in the Pakistani diaspora to raise funding and actually contribute to um, IDP resources and rehabil rehabilitation and things like that. So this is all very optimistic, and so you can all guess what happens next. Um, the, the Prevention of Electronic Crimes Ordinance 2009. Um, this is Pakistan's first attempt at cracking down on all this really great energy political activism, community organizing, um, and civic engagement that has been born of the access to new media tools. Um, this law, it was promulgated in July 2009. Um, it claims to be an anti-cyber terrorism law, um, but cyber terrorism in this law has been very loosely defined. Um, and in its current form, anything, what I'm talking about right now is a form of cyber terrorism. You know, it will put a lot of people, innocent people in jail just for sort of writing regular op-eds about the government, things like that. Um, the law also declares the sending of unsolicited short messages over cell phones or emails um, as a cyber crime. So that means bro like broadcasting text messages, sending out one thing to several people or sending anything via mailing list has instantly been declared a cyber crime. Um, pictures that are published without the permission of the person photographed, specifically, like the individual uh, cannot be published. That means that bloggers who, if I took a picture of this room and I didn't ask all of you for your permission and I put that online, that's a cyber crime now. Which means that even anything from the most harmless sort of documentation of civil events um, to actual investigative journalism, bloggers will no longer be able to do that. Spamming, spoofing, all these sorts of words have been included in the law, um, declared cybercrime. Spoofing could include almost every YouTube video that a Pakistani has ever uploaded online with regards to any political um, figure or something like that. And most problematic is the fact that this law has used highly subjective language. So instead of legal terms, you have things like lewd content, obscene content, immoral content. So the language is subjective and is probably going to cover anything that the government finds offensive. So for the most part, this has been an optimistic story, but I'm really interested to see, this was in July 2009, so we're interested to see how much 
the Pakistan government actually does make the effort to crack down on the energy around new media tools, um, or whether bloggers will be able to continue doing the work that they're doing. Thank you. Thank you very much, Huma. Our next speaker is going to talk to us about Indonesia. Muhammad Ali is Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at the University of California, Riverside. He received his PhD from the University of Hawaii, where he wrote about the dissemination of Islamic knowledge in the Eche and Malay state of Kelantan during the colonial period. His recent research, however, has looked at the varying manifestations of contemporary Islam in Indonesia, focusing particularly on religious pluralism, as well as the meanings of state reactions to radical or heretical movements. Muhammad Ali. Thank you for having me here. So being part of the discussion on new media, this is not my field. Uh, I come from, you know, quite different area, uh, from religious studies de uh, department and from history department. But uh, I had a, a really uh, interest in also uh, seeing and looking at the uh, new media and Islam, especially in the context of Indonesia. I was asked to talk about uh, responses, uh, Muslim responses to the Jakarta blast uh, just recently, uh, July 17, 2009, where you have two blasts in uh, two hotels. So uh, by understanding the, the responses, you can see the politics of difference uh, and the discourses that are going on uh, during this time. So my argument would be uh, politics of difference uh, in Indonesian Muslim publics, so online responses to recent Jakarta blast. Uh, meaning that you have now, with the new media, instead of having a new kind of attitude toward more globalized, inclusive, tolerant, at, uh, uh, they still have actually uh, the existing, or strengthening the existing identities. So it's, it's, instead of being more tolerant because you have more information, but say you have uh, politics, uh, strengthen politics of difference. So they try to strengthen their identities instead of being more tolerant and more listening to the other sides of the, of, of the discourse. Um, so before that, I would like to talk about the use of internet in Indonesia because out of 237 million Indonesia use, you have 25 million, so still quite, you know, it's not so huge uh, users, internet users, because it's so uh, divided into 18,000 islands, and, you know, so you have uh, usually in big universities and in big cities. Uh, but Facebook user is among the eight, uh, sorry, among the 10 largest countries, so you have about 10 million uh, Facebook users, so 3.4% uh, of global uh, membership. So mostly youth. So the, the Facebook, uh, Facebook users are mostly, as you see, uh, about 70 or 80 percent are uh, young generation. Uh, so there is no debate about whether or not um, the use of internet is permissive, uh, permissible or not. So there is no discussion on the permissibility of the internet on media. So for example, internet is haram. There is no such fatwa, for example. So you don't have that in, in the discourse. So all political religious spectrums, they all agree that, and they use internet, including the terrorists. So uh, the terrorists, for example, uh, this is Malaysian, uh, you know, uh, uh, Terrorist uh, Dr. Azhari and Nordin M. Top actively use the internet uh, and also use laptop and, and camera, not using cell phone. <laughs> you can imagine if terrorists using cell phone. So they, you know, because there was uh, there was a, uh, a time where one of the terrorists used cell phone, and at that time, police could uh, could you know curb uh, his, his uh, could. Uh, 
uh, control the, the existence of the terrorists. The Islamists also, Hezbollah Tahrir, this is the international organization, also use uh, internet, mainstream uh, organization, Muhammadiyah, uh, the modernists and the traditionalists. So even the traditionalists doesn't mean that they are not modernists. So all Muslims in Indonesia are modernists because they're all using a technology and internet. That's the, the first point. So there is no debate. There, what, what, what they are debating sometimes is about, about uh, morality. Yeah, you know, for example, whether or not you have a negative side effects that they use called the side effects of the internet. For example, pornography, violence, drugs, and so on. Not so much about copyrights and code of ethics. You don't have copyrights. You know, they, they, they're not discussing about copyrights in Indonesia. A code of ethics, for example. So. Um, and this is interesting because some of even liberal, progressive Muslims, they said, well, uh, we have not made advantage of the internet as aggressively as the Islamists or the fundamentalists have. So in other words, uh, they see that the progressive sees the fundamental Islamists as more aggressive in, in the using and, uh, of the internet. So uh, maybe because of many of the Islamists and the fundamental, they come from uh, you know, universities, secular universities, they, they are very uh, skilled in technology, computer science. So they have more technological skills and also more militancy uh, to, you know, to, to, to boost and to promote their ideas. And organizational consolidation also in terms of uh, how they can mobilize people and so on and so on. You don't have that in, you know, uh, liberal progressive Muslims, why you have this in Hmong Muslim, especially Islamist fundamentalist Muslims. So um, you have here the use of internet among the Islamists uh, making uh, like I dawah, so internet dawah, internet proselytization, uh, internet uh, tarbiyah education, so you have a virtual mosque, uh, virtual pesantren, virtual is Islamic school, so now it's not face to face anymore, but really using the internet, e-books, online Quranic studies, and so on and so on. Um, the internet serves as an alternative and complementary to offline transmission, mass calls, demonstration, etc. So it's not in, uh, not replacing the existing uh, mode of transmission, but simply complementing. Um, now I come to uh, to the Jakarta blast, um, at July 17, 2009. So you have here YouTube uh, <coughs> having this uh, Jakarta blast uh, on the two hotels. So very high-profile American hotels uh, frequented by foreign diplomats and business executives. You know, uh, U.S. embassy people, they usually have meetings there. So the terrorists know that this is really uh, a good, uh, good target. Um, the suicide bombers, two young uh, suicide bombers later on, after two weeks of investigations, happened to be a young high schooler, so 18 years old, Nana and Dani. Uh, it's very, uh, it's, they are not um, Islamically educated, they are just high school, but they are recruited by the masterminded uh, Nurdin M. Top and also uh, Saifuddin Juhri, for example. Uh, the use of internet, the use of the media, uh, I think, can be also seen by, by, by looking at these two uh, persons. Laptop and camera recorder uh, by the Swiss bomber, rec they recorded the survey, so they surveyed the place, the hotels, and then they, uh, the, they also do some, some uh, job description, and then they do uh, some final message uh, about, about uh, why they're doing this uh, terrorist acts. Why Indonesia? Because they, they, they say Indonesia follows an infidel system. So destroy America, destroy Australia. So they recorded this. Uh, 
uh, they, this would be terrorists recorded this so that they could be seen as the heroes, as the, uh, as the martyrs by the next uh, martyrs. So they use this recording uh, to, to also to, to, uh, to further the ideas. Why recording? Uh, one of the reasons uh, said by one of the uh, persons there is getting further fund from the Al-Qaeda, the international networks, and also testing the readiness of the would-be groom. So they, they use the terms pengantin. Uh, so the suicide bombers are called as pengantin. So because this groom will, will be, uh, you know, will have uh, in paradise, uh, you know, uh, uh, wives, uh, beautiful wives, and so on. So whether or not they are ready, so they need to be recorded. So that uh, that's another uh, interesting. So uh, the government tried to respond by saying that this is not justified. Don't fear. Don't let terrorists live freely in Indonesia. We are all our victims. May God protect us. So you see here the discourse of nationalism, but also religion, uh, and also the domestic politics. Uh, one of the one of the purposes said here is that. It may be to undermine the credibility of the president election. So you have here local and global uh, discourses are not really clear whether this is truly global or local. Another um, Islamist group uh, in Indonesia recently is Partai Kadian Sejahtera, which is the party of uh, justice and prosper uh, prosperity. So this is an Islamist party in Indonesia. Uh, they, uh, they say we condemn them. They would have a negative impact on Indonesian, Indonesia's image abroad and on investors. But people should refrain uh, from implicating certain individuals or groups until an inv investigation was completed. So you see here, it's not really clear about condemning the act of terrorism itself, but instead saying that this is, there need to be a, an objective of a investigation about the actor. So it's not really about, uh, about condemning uh, directly terrorism. And then, you know, criticizing the police instead. The police should not be too reactive, uh, and the police should not control Islamic sermons and organizations because they could violate freedom of religion. So they use freedom of religion as, as, a, as a, also a, a, a reason for they. And religious leaders uh, in Indonesia also try to respond to the, the blast. Please distinguish violence from conservatism. Muslim conservatives, according to Hasim Muzadi, for example, are not necessarily violence. So he also tried to uh, make a distinction between Islam as a movement and Islam as a teaching. Uh, that's a way you have new discourses because of this, uh, you know, terrorism. So how to how to locate Islam within the discourse of violence and peace. Uh, the modernist movement, Muhammadiyah, said terrorists are our common enemy. Let's unite. Non don't associate Islam with terrorism. The death of Nuddin M. Top at least could reduce the terrorist act. So you see here again uh, seeing uh, terrorists as a common enemy. And you have a public intellectuals also give some responses, uh, more objective responsive, uh, responses. For example, uh, one of the public intellectuals uh, said that uh, you need to understand psychology of terrorism in order to resolve the problem. Uh, another one say, well, understand the history of terrorism in Indonesia because it's not entirely new because you also had this kind of movement, for example, the Darul Islam for uh, promoting the idea of an Islamic state in Indonesia and also because of the failure of the state and lack of law enforcement. So they try, you know, as a public intellectual, they try to be more objective in, uh, in responding to the, the blast. Uh, and... And then 
This is all about the, the different responses. First, the, the next one is the front of Islamic defenders. We denounce the bombings, but some young people might follow the bombers like sheep, which could lead to civil war. So this uh, is Habib Hiziz, so he's Arab descent uh, religious leader from this from Pembela Islam. Um, but again, what they're trying to suggest is the police, uh, the police should not violate human rights and constitution like in the time of Suharto. This is the the, the former president uh, during uh, uh, for the for uh, 32 years, but they have been involved in acts of domestic terrorism, so sweepings of foreigners and so on and so on. So this again, this is there is ambiguity. My argument is that there is ambiguity in their responses about whether or not terrorism is uh, is a jihad or not. Another uh, movement in Indonesia is Hizbut Tahrir Indonesia, the Party of Liberation of Indonesia. Uh, one of the uh, one of the statements here in the uh, uh, website: Islam does not allow destruction of private property or public facilities and killing people except for just cost. So you again here the exception. So if there is reason for that, then you are allowed to do this. So you have again here ambiguity in condemning uh, violence. Uh, People seeking to destroy the security of the country and society and to discredit Islam carried out the bombing. So again and again, they feel themselves as a victim instead of the, the actor. So this movement tried to see Islam as always the victim and some uh, would uh, rather see the police or the intelligence and you know, CIA and so on and so on as the, uh, as the uh, what is that, coming uh, hitam, what is it, coming hitam, scapegoat. So they always want, they try to warn authorities against holding Islamic groups responsible. Um, you also have former, ter former members, not terrorists, former members of the Jama'ah Islamiyah. So Jama'ah Islamiyah is, uh, is an organization uh, built by an Indonesian in Malaysia. Uh, Nasir Abbas said that Nurdin M. Top uh, is well versed in Islam, but be literate about the Quran, read it more comprehensively to avoid his terrorist ideology. So he still he tried to be more uh, understandable about the idea, uh, about the the motives of uh, the terrorists, but to avoid his uh, terrorist ideology, you need to be more literate about the Quran. So he's more religious from the religious perspective. And then another former member of Isjama Islamia said, "Brother Nordin M. Top, uh, brother." So he calls him uh, you know Nordin Top as brother. So this is on TV show and internet and Facebook and YouTube. <laughs> so brother Nudin M. Top is good looking, he's attractive, he's a good communicator, that's why he's easy to marry local women. So, uh, so he, he tried to understand Nudin Top as a human. Uh, um, and then also, of course, I don't agree with his way of you know, acting as uh, committing a suicide bombing, but I want him uh, to stop committing such act. But still, he's a good person, he's a good guy, and he's a, and, you know, some, so it's still ambiguity again. So you have a diversity of Islamic movements. Another one is Majlis Mujahideen Indonesia. This is the Indonesian uh, Islamic Fighters uh, Council. One of the leaders said, the police again. So the police become the target again and again, are part of the design to discredit Islam. So after the bombing, that's what the police, uh, instead of condemning the, 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 the acts, but uh, it's a critical, very critical of the police. The police are a part of the design to discredit Islam, and the SBY, uh, the president, uh, President Susilo Bandang, Bambang Yudhoyono, has been under pressure by foreign intelligence to destroy radical fundamentalists. So again and again, the government and police become the, the target of criticism among the Islamist groups. 
Okay, another example. Yes, thank you. Um, it's uh, Cyber Sab uh, Sabili. Sabili has been around for for two decades now. It's very influential, especially across universities among the youth in Indonesia. Um, the, the the website says like this: Terrorism is not Islamic. Terrorism is a politically motivated violence, but its motives are not clear. So. Uh, it's not really clear whether, uh, how, for example, Nudin M. Top and uh, the rest of the suicide bombers uh, have the reason. Well, what are really the reasons and motives? Not clear. And the actors are not clear. So again, you have ambiguity here about condemning the act and the actors. Uh, and uh, instead, they warning against trial by the press, stigmatization, labeling, stereotyping, privacy violations, violations by the mass media and their speakers. So you see here, um, uh, the, again, the, the target of criticism is not the act of terrorism itself, but really uh, the, the, uh, the media and the police and the government. Okay, you have more here about don't stigmatize Islam with terrorism, terrorism is not jihad, CIA and the Indonesian intelligence may have been involved in this series of blasts in Indonesia. So you have you know, conspiracy theory again and again among the Islamist groups in Indonesia. On the other hand, you have more progressive Muslims. More progressive Muslims try to understand more uh, from the perspective of either Islam, for example. Well, the terrorists use Islam, so their understanding of Islam is false. So they, they do the terrorism because, the, because, of the, because of perversion of religious interpretation. Terrorists are educated and well-funded, not because they are poor, but because they are wrongly, uh, wrongly in, indoctrinated. So progressive Muslims try to um, to respond terrorism from the perspective of Islamic traditions, that, is, uh, that Islam can be used for terrorist acts. So it's more, you know, more nuanced uh, understanding of terrorism. And also women, uh, especially uh, youth. Um, this is interesting because this, this uh, blog and also Yahoo groups, uh, one of the way we said, Nurdin Top has been sodomized. <laughs> So, and then one of the gay community, by the way, gay community now is spreading in Indonesia and atheism also spreading because of the new media. So you don't have that face-to-face, -face, you know, gay communities or, um, you know, atheist groups, but you do have now because of the new media. At least gay community now have new members. <laughs> so one of, you know, so it's really, uh, so it personalized uh, comments to the, to, the, uh, to the terrorists. He may have hidden uh, explosive in his anus, for example. So you have these comments, personal comments in, in the blogs. You don't have this in the face-to-face -face, uh, relations. Facebookers, of course, uh, and this is, uh, I, would, I would argue that uh, the discussion, the discourse uh, that comes up is also about nationalism. Because Malaysia, for example, here, because the terrorists uh, come from Malaysia, Malaysia should be sorry about having the two countrymen, Dr. Azhari and Nudin Mtop, as terrorists in Indonesia. The welcoming party by Malaysians toward their dead bodies are not sensitive. Why aren't they bombing Malaysia? American companies are there too. So why Indonesia? Well, because Indonesia, according to this blogger, does not want to implement, implement the Sharia, the Islamic law. So because Indonesia is not an Islamic state, so you know, it deserves to be uh, bombed by the terrorists. But, don't blame each other. We are family. Our number one enemy are not uh, the terror. You know, it's uh, instead America and Jews. So the great Satan. So you have again discourse are still there. Uh, and I think I would come to conclusion. So my my arguments that um, you have the polarization of Muslim 
uh, networks. Um, because of the new media, uh, you don't have, for example, the intersection. So you, you don't have so much intersection, interaction between Islamists and liberal and progressive, for example. They tend, in, they tend to strengthen their own identities instead of you know, making a alliance, new alliances with, with different groups. Um, so the polarizing Muslim networks would not see terrorism as justified in the public. But the language of condemnation varies. Islamists are more ambiguous than the liberals, despite the blurring of the categories of Islamists and liberals and progressive. But I see from their discourses that the uh, Islamist discourses of terrorism are more ambiguous than the, the, the liberals. The second point is whether or not we can talk about new Muslim publics. How new is Muslim publics now? Because you still have uh, all old uh, mode of transmissions. They still use, for example, demonstrations, street demonstration, they still do face-to-face -face communication and so on and so on. So, you know, how new is Muslim public? I think this is another, uh, another uh, you know, research as a scholar. Uh, and the blurring of the private and the public, uh, the public. So what is private and what is the public? And what is the religious and what is the secular? Because the Islamist talks about CIS, talks about police, talks about, you know, it's not so much about religion. But you do have this blurring of the religious and the secular. And then the local and the global. What is really a local issue and what is global issue? Sometimes it's not really clear in Indonesia. So uh, this local global interaction uh, can be uh, can be seen. The last point is that the Muslim discourse on the internet varies. You have official, uh, communal, and personal. I think uh, new media allows more personalized comments to what's happening and what's going on to uh, uh, to the, the the societies. But technology has no determinant impact on the content of ideology. So whether or not they become more inclusive or more exclusive, more tolerant, intolerant. Uh, is not determined by the technology, by the new media. Uh, what I would suggest is agency, so agen human agency. It's human themselves, whether or not they are educated rightly or wrongly. So agency and sociocultural context, I would say, not the new media, not the media, but agency and sociocultural context that do matter. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mahmoud. We have two more speakers. Our next speaker is Harun Mogul. He is the executive director of the Maidan Institute, a communication consultancy focusing on improving understanding and access between Muslims and Westerners. He is also the author of an influential and popular blog, Avari, which focuses on issues concerning South Asia, the Middle East, Islam, and Muslim Americans. His novel, The Order of Light, was published in 2006 and later translated into French in 2007. Currently, he's a director of public relations for the Islamic Center for NYU, and he is currently pursuing his PhD in Middle Eastern Studies at Columbia University. He has asked me to tell all of you to please add him on Facebook. Uh, he wants 1,000 friends. He's at 950. Let's help him out. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Harun Mogul. All right. Um. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I, I really do want 1,000 friends on Facebook. It's kind of like a personal goal. I think we should always set goals for ourselves to make our lives meaningful. So, you know, if that means anything. Uh, so, uh, good evening properly. Thank you, everyone, for attending. Uh, thank you to uh, Sarah, Ujahat, all the uh, panelists, uh, everyone who put this together. I'm really honored and grateful to be here. Um, Wajahad mentioned uh, my blog, Avari, uh, which I actually started in 2004. 
Uh, and I started it while I was in Pakistan. I was spending a semester there, or I guess the equivalent of a semester, uh, studying uh, languages on my own initiative, uh, Arabic, Persian, Punjabi, Urdu, just kind of having some fun. Um, it was a very interesting experience. And, and I started blogging in Pakistan, and it kind of accelerated out of control in a certain way. And I ended up posting like a madman uh, on a daily basis. And it went pretty far. Um, I was a serious blogger for about three years. Uh, I'm still blogging at Avari, but far less uh, seriously, I guess you could say. Um, and so I don't want to talk about the blog per se, though I do want to say that that was the way in which I entered this kind of realm of new media. This is what led me onto the path of blogging, uh, and then from there into other forms of new media. Uh, what I did want to talk about was my work at the Islamic Center at New York University and some of the projects we've been involved with and what that means for new media in the Muslim world. So a little bit differently from other people here, I'm going to talk about uh, being an American Muslim uh, located in New York City uh, and how that platform in a digital sense has then kind of spread out to the rest of the world uh, in a really interesting way. And what that means maybe about how uh, Islamic discourse is being changed by new media. So my point really is that uh, already we have global discourses. Uh, we've had global discourses for a long time. Uh, but in the Muslim world, we have generally weaker nation states. I don't mean to say that nationalism doesn't matter, that local identity doesn't matter. I just mean that local or national identity is far more profoundly affected or weakened by international forces. And one of these forces is Islamic discourse. Uh, and if we understand how new media is playing into Islamic discourse, then maybe we can understand uh, how Muslim societies might be changing in the next uh, few decades. Um, so at the Islamic Center at NYU, uh, we, just like any other uh, Muslim organization, we do you know Friday prayers, things like that. Uh, and someone came up with the idea a couple years back of, hey, let's record our sermons and make them available on iTunes and through other downloading uh, mechanisms. So... Uh, through our website, just through other uh, groups that we post them onto, onto Facebook, things like that. And the idea, which we didn't think would really you know, do that much, sort of went far beyond our expectations, which is something that you should come to expect with new media. Uh, today we get about 30,000 downloads a month, and those are the ones we can trace. Um, we don't know beyond that how these things spread, uh, which is also a little bit of a frightening thought. Uh, so one has to be very careful what one says into a microphone. Uh, and we get these downloads from over 130 countries across the world. Uh, what that means is that what we're saying in English in the context of Greenwich Village has found a regular audience over a period of over two years uh, all across the planet. And that speaks to a number of interesting trends. And what I wanted to really start with is how new media changed Islam in the last 100 years. So for anyone who studied the Iranian uh, Islamic Revolution, 1979, some people called it the cassette tape revolution. Uh, that because, uh, you know, the Shah of Iran, uh, among other, shall we say, missteps, because uh, obviously he wasn't Shah at the end of things, uh, decided that letting Khomeini's followers smuggle in cassette tapes wasn't a big deal. Uh, and anyway, how do you really stop the smuggling of cassette tapes? Who's going to sit there and listen to them over and over and over again? Uh, so Khomeini's followers basically just smuggled in statements, speeches, sermons by him and by other uh, prominent mullahs, uh, ayatollahs, who were active in the movement against the Shah. And these things kind of spread all over Iran. Uh, what this also means, and, and I think this is something really important that Muhammad pointed out, uh, uh, Muhammad re referring to Indonesia, I'll call everyone out, don't worry about it. Um, so is that just because someone's using new media 
doesn't mean that they are liberal or that they're secular, and that's something very important to understand. Uh, generally, in the last 100 years, groups that are, uh, I guess you could call Salafi or Wahhabi, have been far quicker to adopt new media as opposed to traditional sources of Islamic authority. Uh, if you look at South Asia, for example, the first peoples uh, in terms of schools of thought to push using Urdu instead of Persian, as in using a locally spoken language as opposed to the high elite language of Persian, were these Salafi, Wahhabi-influenced groups. Uh, this allowed them to connect with people in a much more proactive way. Traditional scholarship emphasized hierarchy. Uh, the Salafis and other groups often undercut that hierarchy. So what happened is the traditionalists sort of found the you know, prayer rug pulled out from under them and then uh, you know, found themselves playing catch-up. And to an extent, you could say they're still playing catch-up. And when we look at new media, we see the same phenomenon. The second phenomenon that's worthy of notice, uh, and it's interesting, again, Muhammad's presentation, uh, when the Indonesian president, SBY, was speaking, you saw one of the most prominent mics there was Al Jazeera. Uh, Al Jazeera is fascinating because uh, founded just about, what, 13 years ago, I think? Uh, Al Jazeera really represented for the first time an independent and high-quality media source that allowed Arabs to communicate with each other uh, without the intervention of foreign media. Uh, so this allowed regional communication across boundaries uh, that was up to a standard, you know, far beyond the very exciting programming on Libyan state television. Uh, you know, I, I've seen it, really. It's, it's amazing. Um, and this allowed people to control the discourse at some level. And that's what blogs right now and new media are doing for the Muslim community in the contemporary context. It's allowing Muslims to talk to each other across boundaries uh, without interrupting uh, without the interrupting force, shall we say, of states, state authorities, state establishments, foreign governments, foreign agendas. Uh, sometimes there are foreign governments and foreign agendas, but you know people don't like to talk about that too much. Uh, but if you study Pakistan in the 80s, uh, you know there were three or four countries, Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, that were really pushing the madrasas. So there are foreign agendas, but this time it's Muslims colonizing each other. So I guess that makes for a more exciting and interesting uh, way of looking at things. When Huma mentioned the internet, she mentioned how, you know, in Pakistan, you have a population of 170 million. I think by the end of the night, it will be 171 million. Um, and how, uh, I'm only marginally joking, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty crazy, right? You know, when the country was, was founded, and keep in mind this was Pakistan and Bangladesh, uh, it was about 70 million. And that population now, 62 years later, is uh, about 310 million. So if I don't know how to do math, I'm a humanities student, but if you can do math and you get back to me with what that means, I will be terrified. <laughs> so what media really does in a case like Pakistan or other places is this new media allows people who speak English to talk to each other in ways they would have never been able to talk to otherwise. Pakistan, for example, the official language of Pakistan is English, uh, for those of you who didn't know. Uh, and many Pakistanis know English, not necessarily with you know, a full facility. The literacy rate in the country is quite low. But when it comes to audio and video, a lot of Pakistanis understand a good deal of English. So they're capable of processing stuff that's produced in the West uh, much more readily than maybe other audiences in other parts of the Muslim world. That holds true for Malaysia, for example, as well. Now, when people are able to do that, and this is where the, the NYU uh, Islamic Center comes in, it totally changes the game regarding schools of thought. And this is really my point and, and the sort of provocative thing we need to think about. Traditionally, and I use that word, I know it's a loaded word, Islam as a discourse was organized into schools of thought, right? What's the purpose of a school of thought? 
Now, if I'm a judge in Spain, and I end up moving to Cairo, and let's say it's the 13th century, and I go into a mosque, and people are debating some problem, and I say, no, 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 you got it all wrong, people are going to say very politely, you know, who are you? And I can say, well, I am a member of this school in thought, and so and so and so are my teachers. It's a way of establishing credibility. If you know what a school of thought is, if you know how a school of thought functions, you understand how a person thinks. It's the same thing as going into a job interview and saying, you know, here's my degree from Berkeley or from Columbia or whatever. You don't need to know what the person studied per se. You just need to see that name there, you know, and assuming also passing GPA. But, you know, um, do you guys have grades at Berkeley? I don't know. Do you, oh, you do? Oh, okay. Uh, the, the dream has died. Um, so in New York, we just look at California with wonder and awe. Um, and, uh, and I have to thank you guys for keeping it real for those you know, two terms when things look kind of dark. Um, so Islamic law has had these madhabs, these schools of thought. That's how people process things. So overwhelmingly, Sunnis in Pakistan were Hanafi. Most Muslims in Central Asia and Turkey and Eastern Europe and throughout South Asia were Hanafi. Most Muslims in Southeast Asia were Shafi'i. These were the organizations. These are what state governments promoted. Two things are now undermining that system. One is that Muslim communities in the West, and that's also worth talking about, generally don't have a connection to a school of thought. When you ask many Muslims in the U.S., it's an interesting thing. When you do surveys and stuff, you know, what kind of Muslim are you? They often say, very assertively, just Muslim. What they mean to say is, I'm not Sunni, I'm not Shia, I don't buy into that, I'm not supporting that kind of sectarianism. But then if you follow up and you say, okay, but you know, what school of thought do you follow? Many of them have no idea what a school of thought is. This doesn't mean that they don't feel connected to their religion or feel that it's an important part of their lives. It's just not something they were exposed to. And in the Muslim world proper, when you have scholars who constitute authoritative voices who are able to broadcast their voices now directly outside of state-sponsored channels then all of a sudden the Madhab framework changes. But this is different from satellite TV and cassettes because there's reciprocity. That's the biggest difference, and that's what's going to change the structure of a school of thought. Because if I'm a mufti in Egypt, and someone asks me a question from Pakistan, and you know, let's say I have time to go through my email inbox, and they respond to my fatwa, and they say, well, you know, what about this, this, and this? That's a level of instantaneous communication that was not possible previously. Uh, that allows scholars to understand conditions far from their own local conditions and allows people at the same time who are in the position of receiving information to be returning, to be responding, to be critiquing, to be challenging. It's creating a very new form of legal thought. Now, whether or not the traditional Islamic establishment can keep up with this uh, remains to be seen, but it does have to be said that in general the traditionalist establishment uh, has on the whole fallen behind. What we found at the Islamic Center at NYU was an interesting illustration of this, and I'll give a couple examples. Um, we've been contacted by Muslims from all over the world who listen to our sermons and our, our, our lectures, who ask us for advice, who ask us questions, uh, who ask us to counsel them. Oftentimes they say because the local Islamic authorities have failed to understand them. So emails from people in India, can you please counsel me? You know, I want to marry someone from a different uh, sectarian background. What do I do? Uh, I think my local imam is crazy, or he doesn't understand me, or there's no one who understands where we're coming from. They just don't get it. We've gotten emails from men and women, mostly women actually, which is also very interesting, in places like Iran, who say, you know, we have really low bandwidth. 
If you could type up your sermons and send them to us as text files, that would be greatly appreciated. Uh, this has also been followed up by people who have been asking us for translations of other languages. Uh, we have to tell them that you know we cannot counsel you in India because phone calls are expensive and we cannot type up sermons because we just don't have the money. But it's interesting that there's that level of reciprocity of engagement and that need. And finally, uh, schools in the Persian Gulf region, or Arabian Gulf, so I don't get myself into trouble. Um, I'll make everyone happy and just call it the Gulf. Uh, schools in those regions, generally K through 12, have used some of these sermons and lectures as materials in their Islamic education curricula. Uh, so that's also very interesting where you get a case where schools in these regions are now asking basically people from the other side of the world to offer up lectures on topics that they don't get in their circle. Uh, when a group of students from Abu Dhabi came to NYU, actually, they got to do a lot of things. So I kind of feel like I wish I was that student. They got to go to uh, President Obama's inauguration, for example. They got all these interesting opportunities made available to them because they're special and at NYU we're not otherwise. Um, I'm not bitter at all. And, you know, when, when the university president asked them what was the thing that really uh, moved you the most or affected you the most, a number of them actually said the Friday sermon. The reason they said that is because they had never encountered a sermon before live, you know, up close and in person, that wasn't scripted. Uh, so it's an interesting fact that when these things start to spread, when these examples start to go viral, shall we say, they create pressure on authorities in local places. They create pressure on traditional authorities, on state authorities, to catch up, to keep up, to respond, to reciprocate. And that eventually creates what I would like to think is a kind of snowball effect. Uh, the challenge becomes whether or not those establishments will respond, whether, as has been said, they'll crack down, they'll tell me I have five minutes left. You know, whatever they can do to censor us and keep us down. Um, I'm just kidding. I love you, Ujahat. Um, so... I think as a last point, because um, I don't want to take too much time, actually I have two last points, but I'll keep saying I have a last point to create the perception of finishing. Um, a lot of Muslim communities in the West don't have a number of the advantages that Muslim communities in the United States and Canada do. Namely, they don't have environments that are as hospitable to themselves. In those places, much of what's produced by American and Canadian Muslims, being you know, new media, being accessible, being from a Western context, being up to date with the same concerns that they may have, suddenly become tremendously important. This allows for, or at least complements, the sustainability of communities in places where otherwise they may not have been sustained. Uh, the benefit to that is obvious, that there is a chance to counter more radical voices or more extreme voices and give them something different, to give them something that can kind of nurture a sense of community while they fight the battle for equal rights, for recognition, for, you know, for being welcomed in their societies. The downside is that it can also potentially create an escape valve where you don't have to negotiate with the society around you. For example, in countries like uh, Denmark and in the Netherlands, where there's a lot of hostility, uh, to the Muslim community, and at the same time, within the Muslim community, there's a lot of resistance to uh, you know, processes of integration. So if you can get your Islamic knowledge, your Islamic discourse from somewhere else, if you don't need the person-to-person -person contact, then does that create uh, an incentive towards uh, ghettoization? And finally, for real, um, I thought I would bring up Benedict Anderson, because being an aspiring academic, you know, I want to drop names. Um, so, you know, Professor Anderson had written on imagined communities, and I just want to say, to throw this out there to get us to think about it, uh, 
how will new media change conceptions and feelings of identity among Muslims? Already a lot of Muslims in a lot of countries throughout the world don't feel a strong sense of identification with the state. Uh, one of the few mechanisms through which the state has the ability to create a sense of loyalty is through religion, which is why we find, uh, you know, in many cases the state is uh, pushing religion or endorsing religion or, or funding religion in different ways to create that sense of bonding, that sense of adhesion. Uh, that's, for example, what Turkey did in the 70s and 80s to offset the left. They tried to fund the Islamist groups. Lo and behold, those same groups are now running the country, so, you know, bad call there. Um, for, from their perspective, or I'm not anti-Turkish democracy or anything, um, just in case since it's being recorded, the whole world now knows what I think. Um, but, you know, seriously, to, to think about that and to just wonder about how that may affect the ability of the state to engender loyalty when that level of, of religious discourse and religious belonging can now be provided by outside sources and sometimes in a more persuasive manner, will that really kick out the last leg of legitimacy in a number of states, and what does that mean in the long term? Uh, so thank you very much. Hope I didn't go over. And his name again is Harun Mogul, spelled M-O-G-H-U-L, if you want to add him on Facebook and help him on his quest. Uh, our last speaker today um, is Nick Nazmi bin Nick Ahmed. He is a Malaysian politician who is also now a very active, popular blogger with his own website, nicknazami.com. Uh, he has been actively involved with the party Ketalan Rakyat, the Malaysian opposition party led by Anwar Ibrahim, many, of, many I'm sure you know, one of the most influential Muslims right now, uh, since he was a teenager. Yeah, he was elected to the legislature in Selangor State in 2008 as a member of the Pakatan Rakyat Coalition and as the youngest candidate to contest a seat in those elections. Currently, he also serves as a political advisor to the Chief Minister of Selangor and is a member of the executive community of his party's youth wing. He's also studied law in King's College. And in the UK, he was a representative to the National Union of Students in 2005, where he was active with other British Muslims in the Federation of Students Islamic Societies for the UK and Ireland. And uh, he's had his own website since 1997, and currently he is about to publish a book on how Malaysian Muslims need to move forward in the 21st century. Nick Nazmi bin Nick Ahmed. Thank you. Um, Assalamu alaikum and a very good evening to everyone. Um, before I go into my presentation, um, as I said yesterday in my uh, presentation at Stanford, how refreshing it is to be welcomed uh, in a university in America because when I uh, speak uh, at a Malaysian university, for example, there's a lot of problems being a member of the opposition. Uh, and recently, um, some of the students who invited me, uh, they got called up to the university tribunal. And uh, before that, uh, when I went to that function, I had to actually disguise myself as a student, uh, hitch a ride on a motorbike, on a student's motorbike, and wore a helmet in order to pretend that I was a student and not a politician because they were trying to stop me to come in. So, well, California is more friendly than <laughs> Malaysia in that sense. Anyway, um, so my presentation will basically be about the Malaysian experience in terms of politics uh, and new media. And as an introduction, um, why new media is very important in Malaysia is because of the limitation of old media uh, in the country, uh, as well as the stratified society. Malaysia is a very um, diverse country. Um, there are Malays, there are Chinese and Indians, Muslims and non-Muslims. 
Uh, as well as a very special point, which I did not put here, is the fact that the government had a big emphasis on ICT, on uh, technology in general. Uh, we tried to replicate the Silicon Valley in the country through what we call the Multimedia Super Corridor, and this means that the internet has a greater uh, presence in the country. And last year, in the March 2008 general elections, the new media played a very, very big role uh, in the change that happened in the country. Um, personally, uh, for me, uh, I was, as mentioned just now, I was involved in the internet uh, as far back as 1997 when I got my hands on the internet. At that time, we had GeoCities and HTML, and you know, we set up websites. It was, I was a teenager at, at that time. Um, but then following the reformasi movement, when Anwar Ibrahim was sacked, I started writing more articles online, um, and I started to have a blog, and I've continued uh, since that day. Uh, so that's why, uh, so as we've seen, uh, new media has become effective across the globe, uh, as today's panel has shown. But, um, uh, and a big, uh, I think, uh, event in Malaysia was in November 2007, when the opposition in general with the NGOs came together uh, to fight for electoral reform. And we had this big gathering called the Bersih, or which literally means clean uh, gathering, trying to clean the electoral role. Uh, and we mobilized about 100,000 people. And this was done both through new and old media and as well as the traditional methods of organizing demonstrations. And it was very successful. Uh, 100,000 Malaysians um, gathered for that demonstration, which is large for a small country like Malaysia. Um, but still, you know, we did not expect that it would play such a big role so soon that in the March 8, 2008 elections, uh, I would say new media had trumped all politics in the country. The ruling coalition, the Barisan National Coalition, lost their two-thirds majority for the, only the second time in history. Uh, and the opposition, the Pakatan Rakyat uh, Coalition, uh, we came to power in five states, which is something historic in Malaysia, including the state I am in. And uh, in addition to that, many bloggers, not just me, but many other prominent bloggers, won as opposition candidates, um, either as members of parliament or members of the state assemblies. Uh, so that's why... Uh, uh, Malaysian scholar Uyuki Bing, he described the March 8 wave as technologically driven and globally informed. Okay, trying to uh, put some context on old politics in the country, I would describe Malaysia as a consociational democracy where traditionally um, every community, every uh, faith was given a place in government through a form of uh, coalition where uh, race-based parties come together and worked at the elite level. Um, and this was uh, how the country was governed between the predominantly Muslim Malays and the predominantly non-Muslim Chinese and Indian minorities. Uh, and this sort of how the, the Barisan National, the ruling coalition, it provided sort of a big tent uh, that allowed for communal parties to continue playing communal politics at a grassroots level. So, for example, they, they, you know, when a Chinese politician goes to a Chinese wedding, he'll say that we have to support the government so that we can stand up to the Malays. We wouldn't be bullied by the Malays. And the same thing, the Malay politician will go down and say that we have to uh, support the government so that the Chinese will not uh, destroy us. Uh, so that's the politics that they played. But when they appear together on TV or national TV together, they will talk about national harmony and unity and all that. So this was what they felt as functional at that time. Because 50 years ago... Um, which was probably true, you know, people were not ready for multiracial politics, so this was the way for them to convince the British that uh, they can work together and yet still make themselves relevant in society. 
Um, and this worked initially at that time because the bulk of society lived separate lives. Um, in the words of a colonial scholar, Furnival, uh, he described it as a uh, plural society. You know, they mixed but they did not combine. Uh, we lived in different places, we had different jobs according to our race, and we spoke different languages. Um, so, and it worked well. It played with um, the people's deep, deepest fears and insecurities, uh, fostered by the huge economic inequality that uh, existed across racial lines. Generally, Malays were very backward, uh, although we were the majority, and the non-Malays were generally ahead of us, uh, which we inherit from the British. Okay, then what the government had is that they also maintained a set of draconian laws um, which they inherited from the British. You know, we learn a lot of things from the British. Uh, no offence to, <laughs> to any Britain here. Um, but basically, we maintain the things to, such as the Official Secrets Act, uh, the Printing Presses and Publications Act, the Sedition Act, as well as the Internal Security Act, which allows detention without trial um, to allow the government to control uh, the press and suppress public debate on what they would define as sensitive issues. And all these laws, except for the Printing Presses and Publication Act, apply to everyone, including bloggers. On the other hand, media ownership was also narrowed. It's either in the hands of the government directly, or it's in the hands of political parties in the ruling coalition, or to politically connected business interests. And this, uh, this um, contributed to the stagnant and limited nature of our press and public discussion. And that's why Malaysian politicians, uh, even the, most, the brilliant ones, uh, they end up playing the politics of the, I would de define, the lowest common denominator and pandering to age-old prejudices. A good example is Utusan Malaysia, which used to be, it's a Malay publication, it used to be quite progressive, but it was acquired by the ruling party, AMNO, uh, a Malay party, and it has been used to stir up racial sentiments up to the point of threatening violence against opposition politicians. Uh, and recently as well, in Malaysia, we've had this uh, series of uh, issues, uh, for example, apostasy about Muslims leaving Islam, about uh, a, a good example is the body snatching issues, which we call in Malaysia, where people who converted to Islam without informing their families when they die, then their body becomes uh, a tussle between the state religious authority and the family. Uh, then there's also the implementation of certain bits of Sharia enactments, uh, the demolition of Hindu temples. Uh, all these issues, they have caught the imagination of Muslim and non-Muslim uh, alike and contributed to religious tensions. And funnily enough, as, as uh, my colleague from Indonesia mentioned just now, many alarmist rumours and these conspiracy theories, it spread through not just the uh, old media, but more effectively through new media, uh, this politics of difference. Um, a lot of emails went out, you know, very alarmist. Uh, and it was, of course, helped that the newspapers such as Utusan Malaysia fan this sort of sentiments. So moving on to... Um, the new media in Malaysia, the new media has basically changed the landscape, uh, among other factors. Uh, according to the MCMC, or Malaysian Commission on Multimedia and Communication, about 65% of our population of 25 million uses the internet. Uh, broadband subscribers, according to the ITU, is about 1.4 million. Um, and I would define, when you talk about new media, it should be looked upon its entirety, not just the internet, but also handphones, you know, all sorts of new mobile devices which allows connectivity and uh, all sorts of different uh, things uh, happening at the same time. So a lot of, for example now, uh, mobile phones can take pictures, record videos, and send out emails. The same content can be uploaded on YouTube at Starbucks. Um, and you know, this becomes a catalyst to viral communication. 
And I will give a short example about how the AMNO, the Malay leading party in the ruling coalition, they had their first uh, convention in 2006 to be, I mean, it's the first convention to be broadcasted live on TV. I mean, this is not even something as complicated as um, new media. It's on satellite TV, and it was broadcasted live, and there was a lot of racist sentiments being expressed. And a lot of these AMNO politicians, they could not understand why people were angry. They said, you know, we used to say this all the time. The difference is that we're just broadcasting it. Um, uh, you know, uh, and it's just that it's a safe escapism, you know. Rather than killing the Chinese, we, we uh, spew hatred about the Chinese in our speeches. That's a safer uh, alternative rather than killing them. Um, but of course, after that, they, they did not uh, continue the broadcast. But what happened was that uh, it stirred up uh, a, a lot of debate on the blogosphere. Uh, you know, even though um, the thing was discontinued, it was uh, saved on YouTube. And so there was a lot of debate in Malaysia. And previously, what the government could do is that they could simply manipulate or silence the fallout from each episodes like this. Um, what the government would do uh, would, would be the mainstream media would uh, downplay or even refuse to report the incident. And uh, the few independent publications, they had too long a production time and too small of an audience to have an impact on national discourse. Um, so now what used to be what we call mama chatter, you know, what we uh, say in our uh, coffee shops, are now uh, made, made its way to the uh, web and uh, for all Malaysians to continue to consume and discuss. And uh, in the same year, government minister announced plans to require the registration of blogs, which if you understand how the internet works, is completely impossible, uh, especially when we are trying to build our own Silicon Valley. Uh, and another government minister commented that all bloggers are unemployed, uh, unhappy women. I don't know why. I mean, actually, there are a lot of male bloggers, but... He described, uh, no, sorry, unemployed, unhappy housewives, I think. Uh, and, uh, you know, so they, they didn't know. They were very nervous. They didn't know how to deal with the new media at that time. Um, and the other thing that helped was that uh, Mahade, who was the father of the internet in Malaysia, uh, who was also the father of our dictatorship for over 22 years, he, was, he had a fallout with the current prime minister at that time, Abdullah Badawi. So he resorted to using the new media to criticize the government, and a lot of journalists who used to be the, the, his supporters to control the media, who were out of jobs when the new prime minister came in, uh, started their own blogs and became now voices of human rights and uh, liberty in Malaysia. So what that meant was that you know, there's a lot of credible people, you know, not just uh, sorry unhappy housewives, uh, <laughs> who started blogging. Uh, that was just a joke. Uh, who started blogging and you know, provided a voice uh, on the internet. Uh, and, you know, the government was very nervous uh, to the point that Jeff Ui, who at that time was a well-known columnist in a business magazine, uh, and Rocky Brew, who's a former Mahade editor, uh, they were both sued by the New Straits Times, which is an establishment English paper um, on, uh, on defamation. And not long after that, a colleague of mine, I was working at Anwar Ibrahim's office at that time, Nathaniel Tan, who's from Harvard. Uh, he's a young blogger, and uh, he got arrested. I was really surprised. Uh, Nathaniel Tan couldn't kill an ant. Uh, I know him very well, and he was arrested um, for four days. Um, and it turned out it's because of a comment on his blog, which was not written by him. Um, and this sort of thing sort of mobilized bloggers. We had our own associations, and bloggers became a force to be reckoned with. I mean, more than, say, in the U.S. or even in any country, I think, because one thing, the nature of our media... Uh, the fact that internet is quite widespread, and the other thing is uh, that we are a very small country. So by the time the 12th general elections took place, blogs were a force to be reckoned with, um, I would say, and uh, especially in the urban constituencies. For example, 
uh, when I started my campaign, a lot of journalists from the mainstream media contacted me to cover my campaign, but most of it didn't end up published. So I resorted to, uh, I had already my own blog. I had, I, I had some friends to had, have this campaign where we have a blog for Nick Nazmi Day, when on one day everyone blogged about me. Uh, it's a bit narcissistic, but uh, well, it was effective. Uh, and we set up a Friends of Nick Nazmi campaign, a sort of Friends of Bill, <laughs> on Facebook, uh, which was also quite effective. Uh, and the other thing was that um, I started a campaign video, which is something very rare. I spent a lot of money on that, uh, and because I didn't think I would win, so I just thought I would do it in a fun way uh, to explore new things. And we did a campaign video, which I uploaded on YouTube. But knowing that a lot of Malaysians not, still uh, do not have access to the internet, I put it on VCD. Uh, and no matter how poor Malaysians are, they will probably have a VCD player and cable TV in Malaysia. So I distributed about 5,000 video CDs uh, to, to my voters. And this helped uh, for me to win. And when the results trickled in on 8th of March, it was clear that the urban and young voters uh, voted against the government in a big way. Uh, clearly, the new media of deliberation, dis discussion and debate played a big role in trumping the old politics of command and control. Of course, other factors come into play, a united opposition led by Anwar Ibrahim, rising cost of living and a weak government. But the new media, I would argue, had a key role to play to bring out voters by the thousands, many of those who have never voted before. And just as mentioned, uh, this is my blog this, um, right now. This, just to give an example, uh, just as um, the new media can be a force for good, it can also be a force for bad. And um, I would give you this example where we have Teresa Kok. Teresa Kok is an opposition po uh, politician from DAP, one of the parties aligned to my party. Um, and she's a Catholic Chinese politician, woman politician. Um, so what happened was that uh, the, the, this rumor started when one of the mosques in our state, uh, the prayer call or the azan stopped playing. People accused the new state government, which is being seen as anti-Islam, as playing a key role in banning azan in that mosque. So a lot of emails came out and all that. Uh, and this was highlighted by an UMNO politician, uh, the ruling government politician, on his blog. Um, this was picked up by the mainstream media, which uh, by Utusan Malaysia, and they wrote a nasty article about it. And surprise, she was arrested for causing disharmony uh, under the Internal Security Act, which allows detention without trial. Uh, and at the same time, I remember when this thing happened, uh, while we were panicking that we might end up being arrested, uh, I received in my emails a lot of my friends were forwarding emails of pictures, these two pictures of her. One, protesting against the use of Arabic script uh, on road signs and the other thing uh, of her with a pig, which is, of course, you know, uh, 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 an animal that is dirty by Islamic standards. So these sort of pictures were going around, uh, trying to create this atmosphere of hatred against Teresa Kok. Uh, it turned out that uh, the prayer call could not be done because the PA system was down because of a thunderstorm. Uh, and we counted back because the mosque committee responded that it had nothing to do with the state government. It was actually something to do with uh, natural disaster. And we scleated back. So this proved that well, at the same time, you can see that it was used for bad new media, but it also provided a level playing field, which we did not have before, to respond to the slanderous allegations that we faced. I'll touch briefly about the nature of Muslim scholarship uh, or discourse and new media in Malaysia. As a result of new media, many Western Muslim scholars, uh, as uh, my colleague from NYU mentioned just now, People such as Sheikh Hamza Yusuf from Berkeley, Yusuf Estes, Suhaib Webb, Tariq Ramadan, who previously, I mean, probably Malaysians would not know much, are now 
well established in Malaysia, especially among the urban English middle class. Similarly, traditional scholars such as Malaysian um, Muhammad Afifi Al-Akiti, who's based in Oxford, or a traditional Yemeni scholar, uh, Sheikh Habib Ali of Yemen, uh, they, they reach new audiences because of new media. Uh, and they gain prominence, largely through new media and the work of Western Muslims. Um, and at the same time, uh, young Muslim scholars, such as former Perlis Mufti Dr. Asri Zainul Abidin, another guy named as Ustad Hasrizal, but his uh, web name is Saiful Islam, they use their blogs to reach out to young Muslims. Um, and uh, Saiful Islam has also inf influenced young Malaysians studying abroad to set up ilovislam.com, which has, it's a fairly popular website, uh, modeled after the radical middle way in the UK. Uh, it has about 70,000 registered users and about 10 million unique hits a month. Um, and uh, so these are the things which are happening. But as mentioned just now, most of the people who take advantage of this, including Dr. Asri and Saful Islam, are Salafi or modernist scholars. Uh, the traditional scholars in Malaysia are still lagging behind um, uh, in terms of this is I Love Islam. And this is Saiful Islam's blog with a Twitter account to boot. Uh, so most of these people are Salafi or modernist. And traditional scholars, partly because the official religion in Malaysia is traditionalist uh, or Azhari, so they tend to be very complacent because they rely on the state to protect them. Uh, and they do not make use, which I f find as very unfortunate because it leaves a lot of young Muslims without being exposed to the heritage, uh, the colourful heritage that they have, not just Salafi, but also traditional Shafi'i scholars. Um, and this is very unfortunate, but maybe because of the name, the traditional is that they are a bit slow to pick up new technology. Lastly, uh, very short, I just the challenges that we face is, one is the opposition politicians, although we benefited a lot from new media, uh, it's largely through accident because the old media was controlled by the government. So we still do not have uh, a comprehensive overall new media strategy. A lot of old people, when they talk about putting up blogs, they put up a blog, but they don't do anything with it. They just put on their pre press statements, which means that you know, you're not making full use of Web 2.0. Uh, at the same time, new media, I would say, as far as, as a politician in Malaysia, it's, an, it's a means to an end. It's not an end to itself, which means that the battle in Malaysia is is still trying to unshackle mainstream media, which is still where most Malaysians rely on. Um, and as we can see, if you see, I think if you have a pat pattern of web, uh, web usage in Malaysia with a pattern of our victories in 2008, it's completely the same because uh, where we are, people are most connected, we made a lot of gains. Uh, and we also want to embed the culture that new media has promoted, this culture of debate and discourse. Uh, the idea that a level playing field is not bad for Islam. Okay? Islam might be criticised, but you can respond back, not just ban that group. I mean, that's something which new media can play a role to, to, to promote. Uh, and for example, the state government I'm in, which is controlled by Pakatan Rakyat, we are trying to introduce a Freedom of Information Act to circumvent the Federal Official Secrets Act. And we have an internet TV channel, but we are trying to reach out more by having, putting it on video CDs or having mobile video shows in markets, in town halls, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, lastly, the conclusion is that uh, Islam and youth culture faces severe tests in Malaysia, uh, but I think that the new media is playing a role to help it meet these challenges and develop their strengths. Um, and I would think that uh, while Malaysia is probably in the middle of a big socio-political turmoil, the new media is a powerful force in pushing progressive causes in Malaysia as it ought to in the Muslim world and globally. Thank you. Let's give a round of applause to all our scholars and speakers who came.
from all over the globe, essentially. And we'll leave that uh, website uh, for the Q&A. So for the Q&A, we actually have, do have time for the question and answer session. First questions to the right. Thank you. Here in Silicon Valley, it's easier to get exposure to certain groups than to others. For instance, uh, there are, uh, I think, a lot of Pakistani engineers in the area, I believe. Uh, this raises the question in my mind whether the, uh, the level of technological sophistication varies widely across the countries we're talking about. And, and uh, what kind of variation does that result in, if any, in how new media affect uh, politics, either in the use by, uh, by groups or in the sophistication of the government's response? That one of the things is that most of the softwares that people are using are things like open source software that's available online. Um, WordPress, for example, is a blogging software that most Pakistani bloggers use, and I'm sure bloggers across the Middle East are using as well. Um, if you've tried to run a blog, it's very easy. There's no technological um, knowledge required to put it up. You just need to know that something like WordPress exists. And one of the things that at least Pakistani bloggers have been really good about is um, um, sort of giving how-to guides on their blogs to other bloggers to encourage them to enter the fold. The other thing is that this community, at least in Pakistan, is still so young that there's a lot of, um, there are about maybe 60 bloggers right now who are active. Um, and they have now realized what sort of a force for change they can be. And so they're still small enough right now that they actually get together face-to-face -to -face and help each other out to figure things out. And online they have their own private listservs where they're sort of always learning and teaching each other. Um, also, and recently, for example, there was a tweet up in Karachi where all the, as many of them could get together, got together just to play with Twitter and see what can we do. So they're still sort of learning. They help each other. The other thing is that there is so much interest in new media in the Muslim world. I know for a fact that at least 10 of the bloggers in Pakistan who have been doing really well, some of the people who did the work I talked about today, have at several points been invited to different conferences. Global Voices Online, which is an initiative based in Cambridge, um, Massachusetts, um, has taken bloggers to Budapest, put them all in a room together, people from all over the world, and all they do there is sort of teach each other how to have fun online. And as um, uh, Mamad was saying, there's Governments are, are, are slower. They're, they have a bureaucratic process that they need to go through to figure out how these things work, to respond to them. So even if you have a 15-year-old in government, in Pakistan we have this one real whiz kid who actually works for the government. Everyone's terrified of him. He often frequently will send out emails saying, I'm on to you, I know how to shut your website down, watch it, here it comes. And then eight months later, he will have been able to send the memo to his boss, would have contacted the information department, would have finalized and approved his act. By then, the bloggers know what's coming. They're well ahead of him. So I do think one of the advantages is that this is organic, it's collaborative, it's, it's cooperative, while the governments that are doing this are sort of governments. Uh, add to that? In, yeah, I mean, in the Middle East specifically, there's uh, the, the Farsi and Arabic blogosphere is... is uh, well above 100,000 regularly updated blogs. And, and if you count all the blogs, it's, it's well over a million. Um, of, of those, I would say there's about maybe two to 300 that are, um, that are uh, some of the, the, the older blogs, the ones that have been around five, six, seven years. Uh, most of those are run by, by people who do have sort of advanced technical knowledge. Uh, they have online workshops. They have... Uh, actual, real workshops that people show up to. They're the same people that 
uh, develop circumvention software. They're the same people that um, find ways to um, send you um, proxy software to your um, to your email because in a place like Saudi Arabia, every proxy website is is blocked. Um, and, and so the, the, the point I'm trying to make is uh, of that huge number of bloggers, there's sort of a small vanguard that is very tech savvy, that is uh, very much involved in um, countering every, every government uh, initiative. Uh, and usually they do it within days or, or weeks. This is not the kind of thing where you have to wait six months. Sorry. Um as far as Malaysia is concerned, I think as I mentioned earlier, what helps is that we have what we call the Bill of Guarantees for our multimedia super corridor for investors, which uh, part of it is uh, because Mahathir had to convince uh, Microsoft and Sun and all that when they wanted to come to Malaysia that there would be no censorship because people were very scared about him, of him. Uh, and um, he promised them that, and that's part of this Bill of Guarantees. And although so Malaysia, we do not have a Bill of Rights, but we have a Bill of Guarantees for our investors. And that is what protects um, internet, uh, the internet media for the, uh, for this point, uh, for at, at, at this point of time. At the same time, what we are doing from uh, an activist perspective is that we are trying to empower the public. Um, a lot of people might have access to internet, but they might just use it for email. You know? So what we are trying to do is now to teach them to use Facebook. Um, for example, we learned uh, that Facebook status, you know, uh, like Twitter, is a very powerful, it can stir a lot of debate. And we are teaching them to use these tools as, from an activist perspective. Um, uh, Twitter, Facebook, blogging and all that. Uh, and we are doing classes actually right now to, to uh, expand the, the, this uh, capacity. Uh, and also, the, this, as mentioned uh, by Huma just now, there's a lot of prestige attached to the top bloggers. Uh, Jeff Wee, who's now an MP in Penang uh, um, uh, and part of our coalition. Um, previously, he was a top um, um, current affairs blogger. And a lot of companies like LG and all that will also approach his blog to advertise. Um, so, and, and he earned a lot. I think he earned at least 10 to 15,000 ringgit, which is a very high income for Malaysians in a month uh, from his blog because he was very uh, top-notch. There's another guy who is not so political. He's, he's, a, uh, he's a, a humorist. Uh, he, his blog is the biggest blog in Malaysia, I think, probably about 100,000 visits a day. Uh, but sometimes he does touch on politics. And, and again, he gets a lot of, uh, he, he, he does a lot of paid blogging. Uh, for big companies, so this sort of uh, you know establishes their credibility and make uh, and they earn a lot of good money from it. Um, and but the other thing that we see is that while a lot of people start blogging, most people blog for personal reasons, their own diary, their love life, whatever. But at one point or another, it will develop into a political commentary. I mean, maybe not regularly, but they will have some issues that they are uh, concerned about, and and that's where the development happens and makes it as a very uh, potent tool in Malaysia. That's all the time we have. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, let's give a round of applause, please, to yourselves and these speakers. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.